All right. Good morning. Thank you for getting up at this early time. Uh, I know that's probably harder for some of you than others. I happen to actually be a morning person. I've actually been up since like five o'clock already, so I'm had my cup of coffee and I'm good to go. Um, as you guys have been walking through the different disciplines, obviously discipline number one being the most important, you know, how we're taking care and shepherding our hearts with the word of God. And then the last time you guys were in here, you talked about the home and the importance of those relationships that are most, uh, that you're most closely tied to, most closely around, and the importance of shepherding those relationships and those people. Um, and this morning, we're going to talk about uh, D3. We're going to talk about the ministry. And specifically, we're going to talk about the relationships of believers with other believers within the context of the local church. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about something called the one another's. Uh, you guys have probably heard about the one another's. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard the one another's. I know when I first heard the one another's, I'm like, where is this? Where, where, where's this, you know, in, in the Bible? And um, it's just a, a term uh, for how Christians interact with other Christians. And the context actually is within the local church. And so we're going to uh, work through that this morning. And the one another's, it's, it's not a book of the Bible, and yet uh, it's a tool uh, for surveying scripture about what it says about the relationships, the biblical relationships within the local church. And the one another's, you know, they don't capture everything that, uh, about how believers relate to one another, but it is just a really extremely helpful tool. And so kind of how did, how did we come up, how did, in general, because a lot of different people have different one another's in different lists. Uh, the way that I put this list together, uh, a number of years ago, I wanted my small group to walk through the one another's. I'd done kind of a survey with the one another's, but I wanted our small group to actually walk through it really, really slowly, you know, one at a time, and just really then taking the time to apply it within our small group. And <clears throat> so I went off and started studying it and uh, then teaching through it in our small group. And uh, the term, or the, uh, the phrase one another, is a tiny little phrase uh, that's an adjective pronoun pair. And in my English translation, the NASB, uh, one another shows up 108 times in 101 different verses in the New Testament. There are primarily two Greek pronouns that get translated into the English phrase one another. And some of these 101 verses are simply narrative passages. They're just describing what's kind of going on. For example, in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 16, they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. That's not exactly what we're looking for when we're just looking for you know, one another. Uh, we want to look for <clears throat> the imperatives, the commands, the expectations for how believers are to actually relate to one another. Uh, there are some one another's that are imperatives that we actually don't want to apply. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 10, betray one another. Hate one another. Verse uh, Revelation 6, 4, slay one another. <laughs> Those are not ones that we'd want to apply. Uh, and so the results of filtering all of these different 108 times and 101 verses down uh, into the commands that relate to believers, we get 38 different one another's that are contained in 59 different verses or passages. Some of the one another's are applied more than once. For example, uh, love one another is, uh, uh, shows up in scripture 14 different times. 
the, the one another's here show up in two different Gospels, Mark and John. They show up in 16 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. And the vast majority of these one another's are explicit commands or expectations for believers. And the vast majority of these commands are to be carried out within the local church. So look around this room. Tomorrow, look around at the people that are gathered. These are the people, this is the context that we're primarily supposed to be carrying these things out, is within the context of the local church. And my hope and desire is that after going through this, that this will provide some familiarity with the one another's so that they stand out in scripture when we're reading them. And so that we'll be practicing them or practicing them more effectively within the body, specifically within the body here, which is our local church, Grace Bible Church. And my hope is also that after we go through this lesson, that you guys will see that the obedient Christian, the obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another in the local church. So I'll, I'll say that again. The obedient Christian must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of one another with one another in the local church. The one another's are essentially a manual for how biblical relationships are to take place within the local church. And one thing we're not going to do as we walk through this is we're not going to pit against each other passages that talk about believers loving other believers in general or loving unbelievers. All of these different passages uh, coexist and complement each other well, but today we're actually going to be focusing on believers' relationships with believers within the context of the local church. And you guys should all have one of these. Uh, you might want to get it out and get it handy because we're going to be walking through that as we go through here. You'll notice on this handout, there are six different categories, uh, and all the different 38 different one another's are on here uh, with all the verse references, and they're broken up into six different categories, love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity. And so we'll be walking through this and pulling this out a number of times as we work through the lesson this morning. And to help us walk through that, we're going to ask ourselves six questions. Six questions on how to investigate how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church. And the first question we're going to ask is, how does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another? <clears throat> the primary and single most important one another is love one another. That command stands over and above all the others. It's an umbrella that covers all of the other one another's. All of the other one another's flow out of this command. 
And we're going to be in, and another thing is we're going to be in scripture a lot and we're going to be all over the place. So uh, you might want to get ready to start flipping pages. First, we're going to be in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And as you guys are turning there, the historical context here is Jesus is in the upper room where they're going to have the Last Supper. He's with his disciples uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and he is hours away from going to the cross. Judas has already left at this point in the meal, and Jesus provides a new commandment. And we'll start, I'll start reading in verse 34. A new commandment, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. That word, love, when you read that, what's one of the first things that you guys think of? Usually, one of the first things I think of when I, I hear the word love is I think of the emotion. I think of the warm feelings, the affections that I have for people that I care about. And biblical love includes that, but it also includes much more than that. A biblical love is one that loves the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. It's a selfless love, a self-giving love. That kind of love is one that transcends our circumstances. It's not tied to our circumstances. I also want you to notice something else about that word love. It's a verb. It's an active verb. This love is a love of action. And in this use of love, that action is directed towards one another. And now Jesus provides this new commandment, and it's new because it narrows the focus of the love. The disciples are not simply to have a love of neighbor, that's been established in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, and in Leviticus 19:18. Here, they are to love one another. And the one another's here in this context are the, the 11 disciples. You, disciples, love the disciples. Jesus did not give this command to the crowds. He did not give this command to all those that were following him. He gave this command specifically and intimately to these 11. The ones that he had spent three years developing very close, intimate relationships with. And the disciples are to love one another with a love that's modeled after the love that Christ had for them. Verse 34, I give the, or a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, even as Christ had loved them. What kind of love did Christ have for them? Christ's love was unconditional. It was not dependent on what the disciples had done or said. And they did and said a number of interesting things. His love was humble. This was the creator of the universe, the king, having condescended, come down to earth to interact with these with these men his creation his creatures and he spent three years with them his love was humble his love was merciful 
His love was gracious. Christ's love was patient. When it wouldn't have been easy for us to have not been patient with some of the things that the disciples did. And we would have been no different. (laughs) Christ's love was self-giving. His love was selfless. His love was sacrificial. And his love for them was demonstrated at great cost to himself. He loved them when they didn't love him. And he loved them when he knew they were going to abandon him. And he's hours away from going to the cross. This is becoming a reality very, very quickly. They're going to abandon him. But that was Christ's love for them. And these disciples were to have that kind of love for each other, for one another. And the results of that love, verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. All men will know that the love that they provide to each other is going to be a witness and a testimony to the world. This new commandment that Jesus gives these disciples is a command for us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to have close, intimate relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out our love on them. And as we do that, our love is going to stand as a witness to an unbelieving world of who we follow. Our love, that kind of a love, is, a, is different from what the world sees. That kind of a love is going to draw attention to Christ. The love we show and demonstrate with one another magnify, magnifies the one that we follow. This is the outstanding and most essential mark of the Christian. Another place that has love one another is found in 1 John. So if you want to flip over there. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. And here, John, the Apostle John is writing to the local churches, likely around Ephesus. And I'm going to actually start reading in verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. For we... We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with deed. Or let let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know 
by this that we are of the truth and our heart will assure us before him uh, and dropping kind of down to verse 23 this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son jesus christ and love one another just as he commanded us in verse 10 it says that he who does not love his brother is not of god our love for one another is evidence that we actually are believers Verse 14 says that we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, our love is evidence that we've been saved. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, Christ being the supreme example. The love that Christ displayed by laying down his life is an example to us. Verse 17, we love one another by providing the worldly needs for our brethren. Verse 18, we love indeed and truth. Our love has action that is supported by and with God's word. And verse 23, we love one another just as he commanded us. Another instance of love one another is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. In my Bible, that's on the next page. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10 says that he loved us when we didn't love him. We actually hated him and rebelled against him. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father sent the perfect sinless one from heaven to earth to become human, to be born and live in a fallen sinful world, and sent him to be the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. These were not for his sins. These were not for everyone's sins. These were for our sins, his people, his church. Christ bore the wrath and the punishment for those sins for those who did not love him and verse 11 says that if god so loved us if god loved us like that we also ought to love one another how easy is it to love somebody that actually hates you that's not common but that's the kind of love that god showed towards us we were actively in rebellion against him and he loved us and Christ's love was selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, gracious, enduring, costly, and it provided for our greatest need, which was reconciliation. And He was doing that for us, which we were helpless to do. And in light of all of that, what should my love for one another look like? What should my love for the one another's here at Grace Bible Church look like? There needs to be others here in my life at Grace Bible Church. 
I need to know what's going on in their lives. I need to have close enough relationships so that I know who they are, I know what's going on, so that I can love them. I need to always be looking for ways to love them, earnestly, constantly, consistently. My love needs to be selfless with godly motivations. Everything that I have, my time, my knowledge, my energy, my possessions, are the Lord's. And they need to be available for one another. And loving others like this, it can be costly. It may be inconvenient, often is so. It may be a significant sacrifice. And these are, these are the ways, these are how we're called to actually love one another. This is how God wants us to practice loving one another here at Grace Bible Church. A second question is, how does God want us to practice caring for one another? And here on the handout, under care, you find care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another, pray for one another. We're going to talk about care for one another found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So go ahead and turn over there. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 25 is where the one another is found. And the context for this verse is really all of chapter 12. And here Paul addressing the, the local church at Corinth. Paul's dealing with division in the body in the Corinthian church. They had factions over who was baptized by who. And now Paul is addressing division in the church because of spiritual gifts. And the focus Paul has here is on the unity of believers as one body in Christ. They're not just individuals, but they are unified for the common good. And the different members of the body are necessary. And I'm going to start reading in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we all and were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the foot, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow much more abundant honor, 
and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. And in verse 24, it says that God, but God has so composed the body. God was so composing the body so that there would be no division within the body, but that the members, the different members, may have the same care for one another. So that they may have the same care for one another. Paul is contrasting division with care for one another. And Paul provides two examples in verse 26 of this unity that we have with suffering and rejoicing. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. And the way that that has played out here at Grace Bible Church, uh, you know, all members suffer with those that are suffering. That has been played out over these years in very specific ways. And most recently, uh, with the passing of Caleb Kelso, um, do we not all suffer with the Kelsos, with Josh, Julie, Asher, Elijah, and Kyla? We all suffer with them. And we are all in that way unified together in that suffering. And that then plays out as care for them, care for one another. As I was, when, when it happened and I had to make a number of phone calls to uh, share the news, the, and I think this was in every case, the initial reaction was just like, what can I do? How can I help? It was wanting to provide that care for them. And that is, that is a great reaction. That is a great knee-jerk reaction. That, that's what the body of believers being unified together should be doing for one another. And, and God so composed the body to do that. And, and that is uh, an example, you know, with suffering, the way that the body is unified around that. And the other example is rejoicing. And, you know, that's why we like to highlight when there's newborns, when there's adoptions, when there's engagements and marriages and those kinds of things. You know, the fathers get to hold up their baby, their little Lion King moment. Um, and that, that's fun. We get to rejoice and we get to see cute little babies and we get to celebrate marriages. Those are things that we can rejoice around collectively as the body and unified. God puts different members in the body with different skills and resources and different capacities for the purpose of providing the same care for the body. God doesn't want division or factions. He wants us unified, caring for those that are suffering and unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. Another way that God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. So flip on over there. Galatians 6, verse 2. 
And this, this command is given to the, the local church in Galatia. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. These these verses are dealing with sin and temptation and restoration. To bear means to carry something that's burdensome, carrying something with endurance. And uh, burden here means just a heavy load, which is just difficult to carry, difficult to lift. Believers in the local church are called to walk with fellow believers and help them bear the burden of sin and temptation. And this is ultimately unto repentance and restoration. That's the goal. Sin and temptation are significant burdens that we need help with. We need help from one another. And this is just not a pastor's job. This is the job for all of us. One of my former pastors said, you're either bearing a burden or you're helping someone else bear theirs. I mean, how many of us, you know, we're we're all strong guys. We like to lift stuff. We don't need help, right? And how many times when you're doing stuff around the house, it's like it's awkward shaped, it's really heavy, and it's it's a two-person lift. You need help. Um, it's too hard to carry or it's too heavy to carry for uh, a long period of time. And, and that's where sin and temptation are like that. We need help. We need one another. And, and those are the ways that we get to practice caring for one another. Uh, the next question, how does God want us to practice edifying one another? So if we look at our handout here again under edification, you'll find... Build up one another, admonish one another, speak truth to one another, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encourage one another, seek after that which is good for one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're going to start with build up one another found in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So head on over to 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 5.11. This command is given to the local church that's found in Thessalonica. And in chapter 5, I'm going to actually start reading in verse 1. Now as to times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Verses 1 through 11 are talking about the day of the Lord. These believers had questions and concerns about when the day of the Lord was going to take place. And so Paul proceeds to encourage them and build them up. He explains truths about believers. They are not in darkness. They are not overtaken. Believers are not destined for wrath. Believers are destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of light and sons of the day. And therefore, since for unbelievers, they're going to get wrath. And since for believers, there's no wrath, encourage and build up one another. Paul was building up these believers with truth. And he was then calling them to build up believers with truth. He gave them the example that he was actually doing. This assumes that we are in close communication with other believers. We're in close communication with believers. We spend time with them so that we can build them up, so that we can encourage them. Another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. And that's found in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, some translations may say instruct, is the word nutheteo, which may seem familiar as some of you have heard of nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. It simply means to counsel about avoidance or sensation or cessation of an improper course of conduct, to admonish, to warn, to instruct. And this is not simply instruction for, the, for knowledge's sake. This is instruction with the purpose of having someone avoid or cease doing something. This is lovingly going to your brother or sister and warning them about something that needs to cease or something they need to avoid. And if we're going to them for something they need to cease or avoid, we need to be bringing what with us? God's word. We're, we're going to bring them God's word and says, God's word says that you need to see this and you need to avoid it or cease doing it. We don't admonish for preferences. We admonish with God's word. And as we're doing this with one another, Paul here is affirming that these Roman believers are able to do this with one another. They're able. We can often think of maybe that's somebody else's job, uh, but God, through the Apostle Paul, says to these Roman believers, you're able to do this. If you're a believer, you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and you've got God's word, you're able to admonish your brother. If you see them in sin, if you see them uh, doing something that they need to avoid, then you bear the responsibility to admonish them. And this is not just for pastors and, and deacons. This is for all of us. And... 
there's an implication here also. If everyone's doing this well, that means that we're going to be admonished. Right? If, if everybody's carrying out this, everybody re recognizes they're able to admonish and they're actually doing that, um, because we're all sinners, um, and we're all going to do that in different ways, um, we're going to be admonished. How are we going to respond when somebody admonishes us? Um, that's something to consider. Likely, none of us really want to be confrontational. We love to be encouraging. Uh, but if one of our brothers or sisters is actually in sin, what's the most loving thing that we can do for them? We can shed light on it. We can expose it. And we can lovingly admonish them for it. Those are the ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. The next question, how does God want us to practice being humble with one another? On the handout says, give preference to one another, be subject to one another, regard one another as more important than yourself, confess your sins to one another, be humble toward one another. We're going to cover give preference to one another found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. I'm sorry to interrupt. Here back up this so I'm curious because something I struggle with uh, um, with some um, believers that I work with and that's probably sometimes a kind of a challenging place for admonishment, right, in the work. Um, so above reproach comes to mind, uh, meaning I've got a big massive log in my face, uh, or vice versa. It's a struggle, so I'm wondering how you how you just approach them, if that question makes sense. So let me make sure I understand. So you're talking about a uh, believers that you have relationship with in the workplace. So not anywhere, but in my particular case. Yeah. So, but not in the context of the local church. Correct. Yeah. Um, it's honestly, it, a lot of it depends on how close a relationship. And I know, at least in in where I work, it's like there can be people that say they're believers. It's like, are they really? You know, um, lots of people make professions, but if they're legitimately believers and you have that kind of a relationship and they recognize God's word and the authority of God's word, um, then it would be the, the same thing, just lovingly, humbly, uh, bringing God's word to them, if you notice something specific. Um, whereas, you know, the command is given in the context of the local church, so we need to be practicing that here within our local church. But that command does not mean that we don't practice that with other believers in general. The problem with practicing it with people that are not within our local church is we have no authority there's there's you can't practice Matthew 18 on somebody else who's not a part of your church um, so there's only so many steps that we can take you know we can we can talk to them we can pray for them we bring God's word to them um, and at the end of the day what happens if they're like whatever you might be able to have another person go with you but then at the end of that it's like Okay, they're just going to be content to live in their sin. Um, 
there's only so much that we can do. Uh, and that's really where they should, hopefully, Lord willing, they would actually be in a sound biblical church that would be practicing Matthew 18 and would have others around that person um, that would perhaps even see some of the same things. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tough spot. I've had relationships, family and others, that it's just like you're limited in what you can do. And if they're truly believers, we can also trust the Lord that the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in them, maybe not today, but in the future. Um, does that... Yeah, it does. And it, it, it's, it's rough because it's and exactly what you said about um, being in the, the same church. It's, I've actually found myself distancing from that brother because we don't have an elder to, I mean, I can share with Denny, that's my small group leader, I can share with Denny all day long and, and seek guidance, but I don't have that brother at the table with us. And, I, and it's just painful because I distance is happening uh, for the brother in Christ it's because we can't come to the table with with an elder or, you know so yeah th those are tough situations and uh, we all enter those in various different ways any other so that all right we're good all right um so we're going to talk about being humble with one another, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And so that also brings up another point. Feel free to interrupt me. I'm going to keep on motoring because it's kind of like a fire hose with scripture and stuff we're going through. But we definitely can hit the pause button, so feel free to do that. And so Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And we're going to be talking about the second half of that. Give preference to one another in honor. This section of Romans has some 25 different exhortations for believers. The section that our verse uh, deals with is specifically within family relationships and specifically the family of God. And uh, in um, give preference to one another, some translations may say, outdo one another in showing honor. This give preference or outdo means to do with eagerness, to do exceedingly, to lead the way, go before, to proceed. And honor is high respect, high esteem. One uh, commentator says, to show genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. We're to go before and to be proactive so that we can give honor. We're showing genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We are quick to show respect. We're quick to show admiration. We're quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. We're quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious. And why would we not be doing this? Because we're focused on ourselves? Because of our pride? It takes humility to get outside of ourselves and to see others at all, let alone to actually see them first. Uh, 
Another way that God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess your sins to one another, found in James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confess means to make an admission of wrongdoing, to make an admission of sin, to confess, to admit it. And we are commanded to continually do this with one another. This is not something we desire to do. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants to stay private. Sin wants to stay secret. And you, when you mix our pride and everything in with it, it makes us run away from confession. But God wants my sin, and he wants your sin exposed. And he wants it dealt, dealt with in the loving fellowship of other believers. And, and this is God's kindness. He doesn't want it, he doesn't want your sin, you know, on the loudspeaker to everybody in the church or in the world. God, by his kindness, he wants it first dealt with in the context of fellow believers intimately. This is one of the reasons why God has Matthew 18 set up the way it is. You go to your brother, to your sister. It's like a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. And if they turn from it, great, we've won our brother. And, and if not, you know what? God has said, you know what? I still don't want it to be announced to everybody. I'm going to expand that circle a little bit. Bring two or three. And if there's repentance, great. Nobody else even needs to know. But you know what? If there's still hardness of heart, you know what? We're going to expand that circle more. God wants our sin exposed. He wants us to actually be repentant. He wants us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ and walk in a manner pleasing to him. God wants that. And a part of that is going to be recognition of our sin, confession of our sin, and turning from our sin. And that's where, you know, again, by his kindness, it starts off with just, you know what, we, well, let's just keep this in the context and uh, in relationship, in an intimate relationship with fellow believers. And we need to be in close, intimate relationships to humbly practice that. That is a humble thing for us to do. To admit that we're wrong, to admit that we have sin, to share that with someone. I mean, when we're doing that, we're being vulnerable. Uh, how are these people even going to judge me? How are they going to, uh, what are they going to think about me now that I've admitted this, confessed this? It's like, you know what? They're sinners too. They're going to uh, not judge us in that way. They're going to be able to, by God's kindness and grace, be able to come alongside of us and help us bear that burden. Another question, how does God want us to practice serving one another? And under service, uh, there's serve one another, be hospitable to one another, and wash one another's feet. We're going to tackle serve one another here first, and that's found in 1 Peter 4, verses 
verse 10. First Peter 4, verse 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve. And here that word serve, uh, you guys might recognize it. It's diet caneo, which is where we get the word for deacon. And that, that word just means a personal service, a discharge of loving service. And in Greek culture, this word had the meaning of waiting tables. And for the Greeks, that kind of service was actually looked down upon as undignified. Uh, a phrase that they would have used is, we are born to rule, not serve. That is the complete opposite of what we're being commanded to do. Our service to one another is out of a love for one another. And it can be very humbling. It can also be very exhausting. And we are to serve one another, pouring ourselves out for one another. And when we're serving, verse 11 we're serving by the strength which God supplies. And when we're serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things, we get the glory. No, we don't get the glory. It's so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We're serving for him. We're serving for his glory. We're serving by the strength which he supplies. It's not because of our strength, our endurance, or anything in us. It's God working through us. Our loving service to and for one another is all about the other person. And it's all done in God's strength, and it's all done to the glory of God. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is to wash one another's feet. And that's found in John chapter 13. So we're flipping back over to John chapter 13, and here, uh, verse 14. And here the disciples, again, this is going back to the very first thing. They're in the upper room. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, but this is actually prior to Judas leaving. So all 12 of them are present. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than the one who sent him. Back then, uh, dirt and dust in Israel were everywhere. And it was not uncommon for this dust or dirt to be like an inch thick. And when it rained, what do you think happened? You had a mess. Um, and they were primarily wearing sandals, and their feet would just get really filthy, dusty, dirty. Um, and at the entrance of every Jewish home, there would have been large pots of water so that when one would come in, they could wash their feet. And for a slave, this was the most menial task they were given, to wash the feet of all the guests that would be coming into the home. And when Jesus and the disciples arrived at the upper room, there was no slave. One of the twelve should have offered to do this, but they, but the twelve were too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And this was found in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. They were too busy being selfish and thinking about their own perceived grace, greatness to see the humble service that actually needed to be done. So Jesus, the God of the universe, the King, the Messiah, who had already humbled himself by coming to earth, taking on flesh, took another step even lower. Jesus, by his example, displayed incredible, humble service that the disciples were to do in a like manner with each other. We're to get low and follow the Lord's humble example. That humble example of service to one another. And, and we don't exactly have the same kind of dirty feet problem that they did, but there are plenty of menial tasks, humble tasks, that we can serve one another with. I know when, when, I, when I teach this part, I always think of um, Johnny Beckman. He served every single person in this church. And probably most of the church didn't even know who he was uh, when he went, to home, went home to be with the Lord last year. Um, they didn't know who he was. There, you know, I had a number of people like, who was Johnny? And uh, he's the one who took out all your garbage. He's the one who did all these other things cleaning up around here. He was the one who was doing a lot of those things that were just humble tasks that nobody saw but the Lord saw. Um, 
And those are, that's the kind of, that, that is a humble service. To not have a spotlight on, on you, you're not going to get any, you know, human recognition. And that's where it's important to remember that Christ is our, God is our primary audience. He is the one who sees everything. He's the one who, it's important to, that he knows what we're doing. Uh, it's not important that others actually know what we're doing. And uh, not many people knew what Johnny was doing, and he served so faithfully in those ways. And those are the kind of ways that God wants us to practice serving one another. Another question is, how does God want us to practice being unified with one another? Under unity, we have be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another. Greet one another. Wait for one another. Do not consume one another. Let us not challenge one another. Let us not envy one another. Show tolerance for one another. Bear with one another. Do not lie to one another. Live in peace with one another. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against one another. And fellowship with one another. We're going to talk about be devoted to one another found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. So we're flipping back over to Romans chapter 12. And again, this is dealing with the family relationships, uh, specifically the family of God. Uh, the first part of verse 10 is be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Some translations say love instead of devoted, but this isn't the same kind of love that we've been talking about. Uh, the Greek word behind this love, the Greek word behind devoted, uh, means natural love. Uh, the, the kind of love that occurs within the family, a kindred love, uh, warm affections uh, for that. It could be translated lovingly loving. And the Greek word behind brotherly love is actually a word that you guys all know. There's a city called the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, they don't actually live up to the name of their city often. <laughs> um, and uh, that word literally means love for brother or sister. It's a blood relative kind of love. The, the affection, the tender, kind, caring, concerned, warm feelings and affections that one has for a blood relative. And if you put all of that together... Uh, you get be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. That's a lot of love. And that's also why I'm not a translator. Uh, believers are to be devoted to each other. They're to be having these affections, this love for each other that are reserved for those most uh, close relationships that people typically have for blood relatives, for immediate family, brothers, sisters, parents, children. And here, here Paul applies that kind of family love to Christians, to one another. And believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one father and we are children of God. We've all been adopted into the same family. We are children of God and we are in the family of Christ. There are things that I will say and do, uh, saying, saying everything with a, a close family member that I wouldn't typically say to a friend, just a friend. Um, and how much 
unity do we have within the family, the unit that God has ordained? Husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers, sisters. That's the relationship that we have with one another here within the local church. And we're commanded to have those kind of warm, familial affections with one another here. Here at GBC. Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to let us not judge one another. And this is found in Romans 14, verse 13. Romans 14. Uh, and, you know, I, well, we've, Sven's been uh, walking us through this. Uh, chapter 14, the context here is it deals with the conscience. Um, and I'm going to read start in verse 1 and go through verse 13. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The one person, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. One who eats is not to regard with contempt one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, and that he might be both Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And in verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul's addressing here in this chapter. One's dealing with food, and the other's dealing with certain days being regarded as more important than the others. There's weak believers, there's strong believers. The strong believers can have an attitude of superiority, contemptuous superiority, and weak believers can have an attitude of self-righteousness. And Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These issues are not in the area of, or these issues are in the area of Christian liberty and practice. These are neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture. These issues are personal preference and historic tradition, not doctrinal or moral compromise. God has accepted both the strong and the weak believer. If God himself doesn't make an issue of such things, what right do his children have to do so? That doesn't mean we don't talk about our preferences, but we don't hold our preferences as though they were principles. And we don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. And we don't regard them with contempt. 
That's another way that we can practice being unified with one another is to not judge one another's preferences. We've investigated six questions on how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church, specifically here at GDC. So let me ask a few more questions. Can one be obedient to scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one be obedient to scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? We all live in America and in this country. It's just very consumeristic. We're all impacted by it and we can't get away from it. Given that, it's very easy to bring that consumeristic view into the church. And it can be common to only focus on what I get out of a relationship, what I get out of a Bible study, what I get out of a small group, or what I get out of the worship service. I view how well something is going based solely on what I felt I got out of it. That is a view of relationships within the local church that scripture does not support. The obedient Christian, you and me, the obedient Christian must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers, and because I'm speaking to Grace Bible Church here, must be in close relationships with fellow believers here at GBC, and evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with the people here at GBC. And here at Grace Bible Church, the primary vehicle that we have for practicing these biblical relationships is small groups. And that's where, you know, Smaller parts of the body are going to spread out geographically over the valley. They're going to spread out time-wise, different, different times and places to get together to walk through God's word, to have those relationships with one another, and to then be practicing these biblical relationships on a smaller scale. Yes? Can I, can I ask a question about... No. <laughs> well, okay. Actually, yeah, keep going until you're out of pause or whatever. No, shoot. Um, I had a question about one of the one another's in unity, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, so do not consume one another. Galatians 5.15, you read that one, you said do not consume one another. Um, and I was wondering if you could just give me context for that. He, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he, he just goes into, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Um, and that always just, you know, I, whenever I read that, I just had trouble understanding what, what the purpose of this passage was, or like how this came across the context of this passage. And I was wondering if you could help me fulfill one of the one another's by <laughs> helping me understand. 
Um, we could talk about that offline. Okay. Um, because we need to actually get finished up. But yeah, we can talk about that. Um, so back to, to small groups. So the you know the small groups are kind of primarily what we as elders have actually set up to uh, you know to try to help to enable those biblical relationships. Um, and these are smaller groups where you get to know one each other better. You get to have more intimate relationships and. You know, so many of them are across different uh, demographics, older, younger, kids, no kids, single, married, just all kinds of things. That's a cross-section of the church. Um, and there's things that can be gleaned and, and, and uh, there's things that we can learn from one another and have a different care for one another that cross those different kind of demographic boundaries rather than just everybody being all in the same season of life. Sometimes that has its benefits and also its challenges. Um, and specifically because, you know, you guys are men, uh, we need to lead in this. We need to be leading this in our homes. Uh, we need to be leading in this in the church. Um, we need to set ourselves up we need to mobilize our, our homes to be able to do this. Uh, it's not an excuse for us to say, well, I have young kids or I have older kids and they, you know, there's different seasons of life and, and that's just, that's the way that life works. Um, we can still have our homes and our families actually mobilized to be able to carry this out with one another in the local church. Um, my kids are a little bit older and we can go serve, we can go do things for other people. That way we can have people in our home when my kids were younger, you know, there were obviously naps and other things, but that there's different ways that you can serve one another. And, but you guys being men, we need to, we need to lead in that and, and not find excuses for that. Um, I am actually just super thankful for the way that God composed the body and put us in relationship with one another. I'm so thankful that he has provided so much instruction for how we are to live this out, live out the Christian life with one another. I'm so thankful for the believers here at GBC that I have close relationships with. And if you've been a part of GBC for any amount of time, I'm sure you've experienced the love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity of your fellow believers here at GBC. So hopefully... Uh, this lesson was able to provide some familiarity with one another so that they stand out in scripture or uh, so that you'll be practicing them or practicing them more effectively here in the body, specifically the body called Grace Bible Church. So uh, let's go ahead and pray. And afterwards, if you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to talk to me. Obviously, I have one queued up. Um, and uh, then you guys will be breaking up into small groups and stuff. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for just your word and how it just does provide so much instruction on how we are to live out the Christian life with one another. You created, you, first you saved us, but you didn't save us to be Lone Ranger Christians. You saved us into a body. And then you, you've explained how our relationships are to be with one another, these biblical relationships. Thank you for all this instruction. I pray that as we carry out our lives with one another, Lord, that it would just bear much fruit, 
much fruit for you, much fruit for your kingdom, much fruit uh, that would just glorify you, Jesus. And it's always in your great name we pray. Amen.